Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 419 of the Juice Box Podcast. Today's show is with an adult type one who always wanted to be an astronaut and today works at NASA Mission Control. She flies the International Space Station. Her name is April, and I want to thank the people in the Juice Box Podcast Facebook group who turned me on to April because I had such an incredible time. I really enjoyed talking about the space program with her. Please remember while you're listening that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Hey, you can check April out at her blog, nerdyapril.com. And she's also on Instagram at nerdyapril. You guys ready? super excited. I love talking to April and I hope you enjoy listening. This episode of the juice box podcast is sponsored by the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. You can learn more about Dexcom at Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. And to find out about Arden's insulin pump, the tubeless insulin pump that Arden has been using since she is four, you're going to want to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. There you can learn all about the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump and even request a free no obligation demo. Isn't that cool? They'll send one right to your house. My name is April Blackwell. I've had type 1 diabetes for uh, 22 years. And I've always wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and instead of being an astronaut, at least in this point of time, I get to do my dream job, which is to fly the International Space Station from Mission Control. Yes. Okay. All right. We're very excited. We're starting. We're starting out very well. Uh, let me find some things out. 22 years old. How old are you now? Or 22 years for diabetes. How old are you now? I, I think I'm 33. <laughs> Interesting you say that. I lose my age every couple of years. Is that what happens to you? Yes. I I think ever since I hit 30, I'm just like, yeah, I'm 30-ish. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, my wife said that I, I said I was going to be 45 the whole year. And she said she never corrected me, but I was going to be 46. And, <laughs> and now this That's year. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. And now this year. I've been running around calling myself 48 and apparently I'm 49. So <laughs> I don't I mean, I age is, you know, it's relative. So yeah, but doesn't it feel like something I should be able to remember? <laughs> I mean, listen, you got, you've got lots of other important things to remember. So let's do this together for a second. In 2021, I have a calculator out and then I'm just going to subtract the year I was born, 1971. So this is going to tell me, my wife says that I'm going to be 50 on my birthday. It does. It, that's mm -hmm. what it said. So um, apparently I'm 49 now. We'll do you now. 2020. And what year were you born? 1987. 1987. You're 1,033. Hold on, I've done something wrong. 20, <laughs> 20 minus 1987. 
You're 33 years old. There you go. All right. I was pretty close. And then we subtract 22 years, and then you've had diabetes for 11 years. I was 11 when I got diabetes. I meant to say you were were 11 when you got diabetes. So just from what you've heard here, just generally, can I help keep the space station in space? Math is hard in public, so we'll give you a pass. Well, that's way too kind. Okay. Um, <laughs> 11 years old. 20, does 22 years ago feel like a long time? It does, actually. Um, in terms of diabetes, so much has changed since I was diagnosed. And clearly, I have changed since then. So it does kind of feel like a long time. It's that To me, once you get over 20 years, it, that starts feeling like a lifetime. You know what I mean? Like, wow, that was so long ago that it's hard to put into perspective. For instance, I just heard recently that this year is like the 25th anniversary of the film Goodwill Hunting. And when I heard that, I just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die soon. But that's exactly what, <laughs> this is exactly what I thought when I heard that, because I remember seeing that movie in a theater. Like on a date. You know what I mean? And now you're telling me yeah. it's been 25 years. I'm not in great shape. This has got to be the last decade of my life is what I thought. And and why <laughs> am I measuring that by goodwill hunting? There's no way to know. Um, but, you know, uh, so tell me a little bit about, like, what diabetes was like when you first were diagnosed. Well, I um, I did the mixing insulin game. So I was on regular and NPH. Um, I remember my parents, well, really my mom mixing up the shots for me. Uh, the blood glucose meters took, I think around 45 seconds. Uh, they did come in some cool colors, which I appreciated. Um, but it took a while to get a a reading and let's see, I didn't have any insulin pens. I just used shots pretty much for two years straight. Mm -hmm. And I remember being very regimented about um, how much I was eating and when I was eating it to the point where in junior high, I would have to, you know, bring a a juice box or something and drink it in between classes as I was going from one class to another, because that's 930, that's your 930 snack or whatever. Um, So I remember being just very regimented on timing and how many carbs I was eating. I'm picturing a little April marching down the hallway in a plaid skirt. Going, it's time for the juice box. And then just <laughs> exactly. ripping it out and being like, did you feel like a, a rebel just eating in the hallway? Or did it did it feel like a spotlight? I didn't really like the eating part of it. Um, I remember that being annoying to me that I had to do that. And that it was like a requirement. Um, what I do remember feeling a little bit rebellious about was when I got my first insulin pump which I think was in ninth, ninth grade, maybe eighth grade. Um, and having that, which at the time, you know, cell phones weren't a thing and I'm dating myself a bit there, but we did that already at the beginning. Don't worry. (laughs) Everyone, everyone thought it was a pager and we had like these security guards that were at our junior high school and they would drive around on their little golf carts. And I remember pulling it out at one point to do a bolus or something and, you know, they like zoomed over in their little golf cart and they were like, what are you doing with this pager? Those aren't allowed at school. <laughs> Crockett and, and tubs explain, were coming after you. Know, <laughs> this is my, my medical device. I am a type one diabetic and this is an insulin pump. I know this is weird because 
not a lot of people have these, but this is my thing. So is it actually weird that when you describe that whole scene in my mind, the Miami, the Miami vice uh, theme song played and those two zoomed over after you with the cart and, and, and I, I saw Crockett and Tubbs get out and ask you why you were dealing drugs at the junior high school with your pager. Uh, that's absolutely. <laughs> Cause I was, you know, I, I, um, I really liked school and school was important to me. And so getting in trouble, even having the security guards talk to me, it was like a huge <laughs> mental breakdown <laughs> for me that that could even be construed as something bad. So that's correct. Well, and you remember it, which is, is, is the most telling because I don't remember one thing that happened to me in ninth grade, you know, <laughs> <laughs> of course we've, just learned it's like 20 years longer ago than your ninth grade was, but that's not the point. I really don't have any, like when you stop and think about your memories, they are the things that impact you like that. It's, you never remember the kind of banal stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So got a pump, looked like a pager. What kind of insulin goes in that pump then? Do you remember? I have been on Humalog since the day I started pumping. Um, which is crazy because just this year I switched to a different insurance. So literally 20 years I've been on Humalog yeah. in my insulin pump. Just this year I switched to a different insurance, um, which didn't cover Humalog anymore. <laughs> and uh, it was um, just one of those moments that kind of catches you and you're like, what do you mean you don't cover Humalog? I have to switch to Novalog, which I've never used in my entire life. And I have no idea how this is going to affect me. Um, but yeah, so Humalog for 20 years and Novalog for the past few months here. What was the impact when you switched? Honestly, I think it was more mental than physical uh, just because I had always been on Humalog. And so um you know, I made the switch and I remember the first week or two being really, really vigilant about my numbers and trying to notice any trends, new trends. And I ended up not really noticing any. So I'm thankful that it was a pretty smooth transition. Yeah, I think I find that most of the modern insulins work pretty similarly. Um, Arden used Novolog for a long time and she uses a Pedra now for a long time. And I've noticed the Pedra to be more smooth acting, but that's in Arden. And, you know, that's really the extent of it. I, I can kind of count on what it does a little more. There isn't as many, um, like, flares where it's like, you know how Novolog once in a while feels like it's working really fast? And then, you know, then suddenly it, it you know, it's gone again. Like, you know, gets these peaks and these tails. I don't feel that as much with a Pedra when I look at the data. Um, but Arden tried Fiasp recently. I, it did work quick, more quickly, uh, but it it burned her. It it, the, mm. it stung, so she had to, she couldn't keep using it. So we tried it for a while and had to switch. But your your first reaction was the one that I see in in the public all the time when people are talking about like, oh my god, my insurance changed. I have to switch insulins. It's the end of the world. And I'm like, it might not be. Like you should try first and see. And uh, I think most people end up having your experience, honestly. I'm I'm glad for that because I was really nervous and uh, my endocrinologist seemed 
like it was no big deal. So I kind of took her lead and I was ready, of course, with my backup plan, like, okay, you know, if this doesn't work, we're going to write up this letter. We're going to send it into the insurance and they're going to approve this as an addition to the formulary and all this stuff. Um, which is just kind of what you do as an engineer. You always have a backup plan, but <laughs> thankfully you didn't need it. Did you have the letter half written in your head? Dear Sarah or <laughs> madam, I was just Absolutely. about to receive my retirement watch from Humalog when you... <laughs> 20, Absolutely. 20 years is a really long time. That's... Yeah. Um, it's, it's significant. I mean, honestly, I can see being concerned. Okay. All right. So how do we go from little girl who has diabetes... You said school was really important to you. At what point do you say to yourself, I want to go into space? And at what point do you find out if that's possible or not? I'm doing the ads a little earlier in the show than normal because I'd like to sort of just get them out of the way so I can keep talking to April. See, I know what's coming, so I know where to put the ads. You understand. Dexcom, the continuous glucose monitor that allows you to see your blood sugar in real time, the speed and direction and number. For instance, Arden just had pancakes about 45 minutes ago, and I'm not going to lie to you, we messed that up. Kind of forgot to pre-bolus enough. Okay, fair enough. Well, not long after, here's what I see. Arden's blood sugar is shooting up, and I can see how fast. So I watch her blood sugar go from 90 to 100, to 110, 120, and it's flying, right? So when it gets to a certain number, I say to myself, ooh, the insulin I gave her is not going to work. And I gave her more. Now we'll use the same data to make sure she doesn't get low later. So I stopped a spike, leveled it off, and we'll keep it from getting low using the feedback that I get from Arden's Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. Yes, you can set alarms on it, right, to tell you when you go above or below a certain number. Those are user-definable. You can do whatever you want, which is great for sleeping or activity or just, you know, trying to stay in a good range. And, of course, you can share your information with other people. Like, I can see Arden's Dexcom information right now on my iPhone. You could, too. You could also see it on your Android phone. That stuff's all terrific. And, by the way, up to 10 people can follow you. So you could have a kid who's being followed by a mom, a dad, a grandma, a school nurse, and you'd still have room for six more people. Or don't let anybody follow you. I don't care. It's your life. Do what you want. I'm just saying. Options. Dexcom is at the core of the decisions we get to make every day while managing insulin. And I'm telling you, whether you have type 1 or type 2, this is the way to go. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. There are also links, by the way, in the show notes of your podcast player and at juiceboxpodcast.com for all the sponsors. Sponsors like the Omnipod Tubeless Insulin Pump. Did you see what I did there? Omnipod, the tubeless insulin pump. I know you're thinking, but I saw an insulin pump one time and it was like this little metal box and had a screen on it. And there was this piece of tubing that went like three or four feet into an infusion set. And it just seemed like a lot. I didn't want to wear all that. Yeah, yeah. Omnipod doesn't have any of that. Omnipod is self-contained. And the controller that you use to tell your, tell it, you know, like, give me some insulin, wireless, right? Wireless. You can put it in your purse, in your pocket. You can leave it on the countertop. You don't need to have it with you all the time. The pod has everything in it you need. Your insulin's with you all the time. 
and they'll send you a free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod so you can try it on and wear it to see what it feels like. And that is invaluable. It absolutely is. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Get that demo sent to you right now. It's no obligation. So get it and don't like it. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Get it and don't have time to put it on right away. It's fine. But get it. Give yourself a chance to see what you're missing. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. I'm in a good mood. NerdyApril.com. Don't forget the T1D exchange at T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. Actually, if you're listening to this on the first week it's out, you can watch my blood sugar live right now at juiceboxpodcast.com forward slash CGM live. I started being interested in space since about kindergarten. So I guess you could say I just started school off with the idea that I was going to be an astronaut. Um, and so that, that always drove my decisions and what I was interested in, what books I checked out of the library, what summer school programs I signed up for, begged my mom to sign me up for. And then uh, diabetes happened in um, sixth grade. So I was already like six years, you know, into, into this career choice, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Your commitment um, was six years old already. Yeah. yeah. So, excellent. you know, I had to, I had to really investigate whether diabetes was going to be an issue. Um, and it turned out it was mm. still is to this day. And it kind of led to some soul searching there in sixth grade junior high, you know, was there something else I was interested in um, that I could sort of pivot to instead of being heartbroken about not being an astronaut? So after that soul searching was done, I decided that there wasn't anything else I was more interested in. I thought space was just awesome. Uh, Rockets were so cool. It was so cool that we could launch people into space on rockets. They could live there in low Earth orbit. They could do science experiments and all sorts of really awesome stuff. And I just wanted to be a part of that. It's just something bigger than yourself um, that's really neat that we can collaborate and come together um, and be able to, to do such awesome things in space. And so... That just kind of continued. Um, I ended up getting an aerospace engineering degree, uh, starting my first job out of college, which actually didn't have that much to do with space, but (laughs) I learned a lot at the job. Um, I got to fly on experimental helicopters for the Army and boss test pilots around, so that was kind of cool. And then eventually ended up at my dream job here at NASA. Okay, so you do you have to be a pilot to be an astronaut? Absolutely not. No, okay. that that used to be a, a deal back in the day. the The original Mercury Seven, and you know, a lot of the Apollo astronauts were test pilots um, or had a lot of jet time, but definitely not a requirement anymore. In fact, on the space station right now, we have a breadth of different people from all sorts of um, backgrounds. We even have uh, someone who's a biologist. Uh, we do have two pilots, but we also have um, a medical doctor. 
So it's really interesting to see all the different careers that um, are part of the astronaut corps now. Wow. So there's only, there's two pilots up there now. So when they come back, if I don't, I'm going to make up like some crazy scenario, but like space monsters eat the pilots. Can they get back? Okay. Like, can someone else do that part or is it mostly automated? Like I'm interested in about how, how the capsules work in reentry. Yeah. 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 So mostly automated. Um, that's kind of the great thing about how we operate now. If you think back in like the Apollo era, if you've seen Apollo 13 or any of those old, um, sort of space movies, Mm -hmm. it, the astronauts are like flipping a lot of. April, you're gone. Puts and stuff to the capsule. April, you disappeared for a second. I'm sorry. You said they were flipping a lot of, I'm assuming you were going to say switches. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So they they used to flip a lot of switches. You know, they had pers- whole procedures for how they were going to um, input all of their reentry parameters and landing parameters. And the nice thing is, we have we don't have to operate that way anymore. Hmm. So the reentry, landing, all of that is pretty automated. Um, and even on the space station, you know, we really try to have the astronauts focus on doing the science because that is what the International Space Station is. It is a an orbiting laboratory. So we really want them to focus on science and we take care of most of the systems on board the International Space Station from the ground in mission control. Wow. That is really cool. April and I spoke a little before we did the recording, which I never do. Um, April, with anybody I talk to, I never talk to anybody first. I love it to all happen here. Uh, and now I know why, because as soon as I got on the phone with April, I was like, I started telling her all my stories and <laughs> I was like a little too excited about what she does for a living. Um, be- because I grew up right through the, like the shuttle era and it was a big deal. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it was like the Super Bowl when the space shuttle went up and people oh, stopped yeah. what they were doing. And, you know, I, I know this is probably strange for younger people to hear, but they would roll televisions into our classrooms on these big carts and have rabbit ears. They were trying to get the signal in or they'd move us into the auditorium and then put like multiple televisions in front of us. And when I say this to people, you should understand I'm talking about like a 30 inch square TV that you really couldn't see if you were more than like nine feet away from it. But we would all just stare, you know, Um, and it was it was just stunning that that thing would go up and the cargo bay doors would open and arms would come out of it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like, felt like it was from a cartoon, you know? Um, and, and I never knew, you never knew what they were doing as a young person. Like they would say they're doing experiments. You're like, all right. And then, you know, you get older and you're like, you know, Velcro. You're like, yeah, space. And I'm like, wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) You you know, you're like, well, that's it. (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't be doing this just Velcro. But then you realize that what more and more and more comes out of it. And, and the idea of trying to stay there longer and longer to see if one day we can't push humanity off of this planet to somewhere else, that's all really incredibly just exciting. How does it feel to work on something that the culmination of your work may not even happen in your work lifetime? Does that feel weird or no? Or do you think of yourself more as day-to-day operational stuff? It sometimes feels weird. Um, I just think that, you know, being in the space industry and being interested in it now for a few decades, Mm -hmm. 
you realize that these things just take time. And so it's very likely that there's going to be things you work on that you won't ever get to see come to fruition. But the interim and the middle, the journey is so awesome and cool. Uh, You know, right now we're operating ISS, which if you're 20 years old or younger, there has always been a person or people in space. So we haven't all been together. All the humans alive have never been together on planet earth for the last 20 years, which just kind of blows my mind because a 20 year old person could be working as an intern at NASA now. So I think that's, you know, just a really neat facet of this kind of work and being able to sort of disconnect yourself from the day-to-day and step back and see things from a bigger picture. I think there's many industries and many areas of life and politics and everything where we wish people could do that. And so having that perspective is really neat. I've even compared it to, you know, the diabetes industry and how, you know, there's been some pushback lately about funding sort of long-term diabetes research and that all the type ones that are alive now may never actually see that come to fruition. But if you think about all the research that's being done towards that end, and similarly, all the research on ISS that's being done, it's helping so many tertiary things in the interim. You know, on ISS, we're doing lots of science and that's helping countries um, create more clean drinking water, or it's helping us develop these telemedicine visits because guess what? We have to do telemedicine for the astronauts that are on ISS. So all of these sort of interim things that we're learning are definitely helping our quality of life now. And same thing with these long-term diabetes research programs, you know, the, the benefits we may not ever get to that end goal benefit of a cure, but in the interim, we're getting pumps and CGMs and um, closed loop systems and better insulins. And I think there's a lot of good that can come even in the journey. Yeah. It's hard. I imagine for a lot of people to think, you know, I'm in this room and it needs to be painted, but it's going to take a hundred years to paint the room. Yet if I don't pick this brush up and start, we'll never reach the end. You know, like it's, it's, you, you have to have that kind of explorer like mentality. Like, I'm going to get in a wagon and go west. I'm going to get in a ship and sail away. That kind of stuff is, um, is not pay you back right now kind of things, but they're the entire reason why you have long term success. And, you know, it's funny when you said you were, um, you, that you compare it a lot to diabetes and you, and you sort of talked about research. I was thinking personally, you know, you, you need to pre-bolus lunch today so you don't have a spike two hours from now, you know, or an hour from now. And if you don't have that spike after this lunch, then 40 years from now, you might have a great health outcome that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's, it's, it can be difficult to see how the work done in the moment affects the larger picture. Um, and I just thought, you know, when I asked you the question, I, I thought like, I think that, oh, all right, April, ready? When I was a little kid, <laughs> I used to think if I could make a deal with somebody, I'd give away the last 10 years of my life if I could come back for a year every 10 years just to see how things had changed. And more recently, as an older person, I realized I should have said, you know, I realized in case this happens, uh, you know, that I could, uh, I should give away the last 10 years of my life to come back once 
for a year every hundred years. And and that's almost one of the sadder things about being alive to me is that I don't get to see where it goes. And um and that's why I asked you that, because I, I have a feeling that one day we are gonna figure out how to put people on other floating rocks. And um, <laughs> you know, you're gonna have been a really big part of that and you won't get to see it. But so goes it, I guess, for all of us. Tell me a little bit about what did you take in college that prepped you for this? And what were your interests? Oh, wait, before I ask that question, I have to say this. An 11-year-old being introspective about changing their job choice that they made when they were in kindergarten and having such a calm, calm. Are you like the most mature person on the planet? <laughs> if you asked my mom that, she probably would say yes. Uh, she still jokes to this day that it was so funny to her that she would wake up on Saturday mornings and I would be awake watching TV, but I wouldn't be watching cartoons. I would be watching the news because I was interested to see if there's any space stuff going on. And back in those days, actually, if you remember, there weren't websites and stuff. So if you, you know, saw a product on TV that you thought would benefit your life, you had to actually call a phone number. So I remember writing down, you know, here I am, age seven or eight. And I'm like writing down these phone numbers. And then I would tell my mom when she woke up, you know, I think this weighted blanket or whatever would be really great for you. Here's the number you can call to <laughs> order it. Oh my God. Um, April, does this put you in the dork or geek category? Just quickly. Do you know? I don't know. See, <laughs> I, I'm nerdy April. So I, I like to think of myself as a nerd. Let's go nerdy then. Okay. I don't get offended if you want to call me something else. <laughs> A long breakdown of this on a, on an episode that hasn't come out yet, by the way, with, <laughs> with a couple. Uh, so, I, so you were so literally, you'd be like, "Hey, mom, listen, you call this eight hundred number. I'm telling you right now, we're getting rid of that planner's wart you've got." <laughs> exactly. Like, here's the life insurance. I think you'd probably benefit from some life insurance, or yeah, all <laughs> okay. that kind of stuff. But so you, all that to say, I I do remember life before diabetes. I was 11. So um, I know not everyone has that ability, that perspective. And I remember, you know, getting diabetes at 11 just made me instantly grow up mm. because for better or worse, my parents were the type that, you know, if I wanted to spend the night at a friend's house, I needed to be able to take care of myself on my own. So that meant I needed to be able to check my blood sugar, react to that blood sugar, um, you know, get my shot ready, deliver my shot. And I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be with my friends. So that really encouraged me to like get over those humps really fast. Yeah. Do you think that it's more reasonable to expect that 20 years ago than today? Because I'm obviously I'm not minimizing your care as a child, but you really were mixing a couple of things together, jamming a needle, pushing, and then just making sure to eat at a certain time, right? Like that was the expectation. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And now you know how to manage with more modern insulin. Do you think it's, do you think at 11 year old, you in today's world, do you think it would have been apples to apples? Definitely not. Um, I mean, just so much has changed. And I, I can't really predict, you know, what an 11-year-old today would, would be able to do. And I think it's very 
child dependent. I have two children of my own now and I can see that just everything is very child dependent. So the neat thing is we have a lot more tools as parents now, you know, I, God forbid one of my kids get diabetes, you know, now we have all of these share apps and ability to really track trends and notice trends better and, um, you know, dial those in. So there's some tools that while make, they, they make the management, um, tighter, they are pretty complicated and being able to interpret all that data, you know, maybe would take a parent to, to actually understand that and make, make decisions. Yeah, when you were explaining it, I thought, imagine if podcasts existed 20 years ago and I had the idea to have a diabetes podcast, it would be one episode long. I'd be like, so you take this, put it in that, mix it up, inject it, and then make sure you eat at noon. Thanks for listening. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're back in your, I also wondered if your parents wanted you to be um, very, you know, in control and mature, or if they were just swingers and they needed you out of the house, like I wasn't sure which one. Well, you can't be here Saturday. You have to go on an overnight visit. We need you to learn how to do this. I don't know. You'll have to ask them. There's a key, we're having a key party, honey. You got to go. <laughs> That's a very 70s thing to say. I don't know if uh, it would have worked as well in the 80s. Um, okay. So you are the most mature child on the planet. We've, we've, because I've never had. I'm still not sure if I've had the kind of conversation with myself that you described with you as you were like 11 years old. Um, but so you, so do you start paying attention in school to that end? Like I'm going to be, cause you're an engineer now. Is that right? Correct. Right. Yeah. And I would say a hundred percent it having that end goal of, you know, being an engineer, I still haven't given up on the goal of being an astronaut. So that's still out there. Um, it just drives all of your decisions when you're that passionate about it. Um, you know, it, it makes you want to take the advanced math classes or choose Russian for your foreign language instead of Spanish or something. Hmm. Um, doing extracurriculars that, you know, you've seen in astronaut biographies already, you know, being marching band drum major or writing for the school newspaper, you know, having internships and seeking those out getting scholarships, all that stuff. So it just really drives your decisions, which is maybe not a bad thing. It's just, it was a little bit earlier than some of my friends maybe. Well, you know, I think that as you're talking about this, what I'm realizing, you know, it's being reaffirmed for me is that there are some things on the planet we need people like you for, you know, it's, it's like, it's easy to sit back and go like, oh, they're messing up this you know thing or, you know, they, whoever they is, they mess this up. They mess that up. You got April here who's been laser focused on space since she was five. And that's how, that's how when you flip the television on and you see a rocket take off and it goes into, you know, it was up into space and it actually works. That's how that ends up happening. Because I'm assuming there are thousands of people in the organization who all have this kind of focus. And that's not focus everyone has. Like your job's not like a job. You don't flip the newspaper open and go like, huh, I need some work. Oh, yeah, NASA. I'll call that one. You, you, you know, like this is a it's a calling. And um, and it's it's really cool to know that people like you are doing stuff like this. What are the real odds of you getting into space? Because I'm imagining a podcast live from orbit. Is that possible? Um. Right now, it's not possible, but I'm pretty hopeful about some of the commercial companies. So, um, you know, NASA does 
just sort of the bigger missions, right? They they spend literally months in low Earth orbit. You know, we're talking about going back to the moon. We're going to deep space. Um, we're thinking about Mars, of course. So those are all missions that are, you know, require humans in peak physical condition, peak mental condition. And the interesting thing about how the landscape is changing, you know, there's these commercial companies coming online and they're going to want people's money. And the people that have money may not be perfect human specimens. Uh, so I think that opens up the door for people like me who have a chronic illness um, to maybe get our moment in space. And it may not be a six month mission, but I'm hopeful that we'll at least get to see, you know, the curvature of the earth and be able to float around for a few minutes. Okay. So you're thinking that you may be able to go as a passenger on a, on a commercial flight. Right. Right. Not that you get to work the commercial, like, why could you not work the commercial flight? Why can't, like, why couldn't you be the cruise director of the thing that, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, hi, if everyone looks out this window over here, you're going to see, uh, whatever. Uh, like I, I understand. Okay. So unless somebody reaches inside of you and squishes that pancreas around and magically makes it work again, you don't, you don't see that as like a, a job in space, but you still want to make it there. That's that's my understanding. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I think kind of breaking down barriers and, and breaking the ceilings, if you will, um, is an important part of sort of my life mantra and kind of what I did already with my first job um, being a flight test engineer and, you know, getting through several different programs that the Army has that aren't typically, you know, for type 1 diabetics because, surprise right now the military doesn't let in type 1 diabetics unless you're diagnosed while you're already in the military um and so it was it kind of provided a unique opportunity to to forge that path mm -hmm. and then you know recently the FAA has come out with some new rulings about what type of medical clearances they're going to grant to type 1s and so all these different jobs that previously restricted type 1s um are sort of looking at the data again with fresh eyes and with the fresh diabetes management techniques that we have and reevaluating whether those rules still make sense. And I think space is just, you know, it's the next frontier for type one diabetics. No kidding. Oh, that's very cool. Okay. So, um, yeah, I had, I, I feel like I had the guy on who got the first license, um, after the FAA changed the rules. Is it weird that I've done so many podcasts that I'm not 100% sure if that was? <laughs> You're just a lucky guy. You get to talk to really cool people. I really, I really, his uh, conversation with him was, was terrific. And I'm not going to take up our time with me trying to figure out what episode number it was. But um, just now I, th I thought to myself, I had the first guy on who had the, then I was like, did he, was he the first? I think he was. And I'm like, oh, I can't say it if I'm not sure. And anyway, <laughs> now I've just kind of pseudo said it. Um so where do you go to college and what do you major in? Uh, I went to Arizona State University. I grew up in Arizona um, and luckily they had a scholarship program for people in the top of each graduating class. Mm -hmm. So that turned out to work out <laughs> for me, nice. um, which meant that college was free. So that was really great. You know, graduating with no student debt is um pretty big accomplishment in my book. 
Uh, And then I moved across the country to Alabama, of all places, um, to work for the Army doing flight test engineering. And while I was at that job, I got my master's degree from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in um, Florida. Aeronautical Science, Masters of Aeronautical Science. Is that school in Florida? Uh, That's where the headquarters are, yes. I did most of the classes online um, just because I was remote in Alabama, but... um, Yes, the headquarters are in Florida. Cool. Hey, watch the wire on your headphones, okay? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, plus you have to learn how to do things remotely anyway. So you might as well. I mean, you're, isn't it funny everyone's complaining about being remote? Your whole job's remote. You sit- Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was joking to someone about that. I mean, we have to, it, it's, it's literally exactly like everyone's experiencing with the pandemic, you know, Um trying to figure out how to fix your car or something in your house remotely by watching a YouTube video or, you know, calling your friend who's a mechanic. That's exactly what we do every single day on the International Space Station. You know, they have a toilet that's broken up there. Someone on the ground is telling them how to fix it, you know, yeah. so it's interesting. That's really something. Um, So what do you, all right, what is your, uh, hold on. See, I have too many questions. <laughs> what was your first job? At NASA. How do you get a job at NASA? Well, good question. There's lots of different avenues you can go about it. Um, I ended up just applying through um, USA Jobs. They use, you know, the government jobs website Mm -hmm. since they're a government agency. And um, that led to a few phone interviews and then eventually... Um, flying out here to Houston. And part of the interview process was interesting because a big part of my job is communication. Uh, You know, we practice communication every single day in the flight control room um, and how we communicate problems or failures, anomalies, plans to people up the chain, like flight directors as well. Um, And so part of the interview process was actually giving a presentation about something I had worked on previously. A lot of people do college presentations. Um, Since I had a job before, I ended up doing a presentation from my previous job. But it was really fun, actually, to sort of share that with them. And then, of course, you know, talk to several managers and even got a tour around Mission Control. So honestly, it was more fun for me probably than the people thinking about hiring me (laughs) what what first what first work did you do for them um i've always worked this job so interestingly um it it is like a second master's degree it does take about two years from the time you're hired to when you're actually certified to sit in mission control and during that time you are taking classes and doing checkouts, we call them. So they're like oral examinations. And uh, you also practice your skills in simulations. So they throw tons of malfunctions at you and see if you can prioritize and use your time management skills and your communication, teamwork, all that. And then you eventually have a final simulation where you know that most of the problems on ISS are going to happen in your system. And you have to pass that before you can sit solo in mission control. Do people get hired? So, because what you're describing is you're getting hired and really you're, you're not going to work. You're going about learning to do the job for two. So your first two years are just, like you said, school. 
it's like NASA school. Are there people who don't make it through and ever get to actually do the work? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, We get hired in what's called classes. So I was hired with two other guys. And most classes for our group are three or four people that you sort of go through all your, your learning with. And since I've been here at NASA, which is now seven and a half years, there's only been one class where everyone has made it to be certified. Wow. So there's actually a pretty decent washout rate for various reasons. So you can work two years trying to learn this thing. And at the end, just be like, I don't get this. And then that's, and they're like, yeah, goodbye. We noticed. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you are sitting solo in mission control, flying a $50 billion space station with six or seven humans on board. So you do need to know what you're doing and you need to be able to not only know the technical, but be able to communicate it and work with your team. Um, so there's a lot of different aspects to the job besides just technical orbital mechanics or whatever. And the prioritizing you talked about. So if two, if two things pop up at once as problems, you, you really need to be able in an instant to say it's pertinent to do this one before that one. And, and so we'll address this, then we'll address that because this is more, I don't know vital to what's happening i guess and the most vital thing is oh i'm gonna ask, i'm just gonna right, first of all what's your title do most people wait 40 minutes to ask you what your title is <laughs> they don't okay. but that's okay all because right. it's kind of i don't know maybe not very descriptive so uh our console name is attitude determination and control officer okay and when you emailed that to me i assumed it was a typo did you, <laughs> did you do many people have that issue I think it's just uh, if you're not involved with space, it may seem a little bit strange or foreign. Okay, because it's attitude. And I thought she means altitude. How could she have gotten that wrong? It's her job. But anyway, then I texted back and you're like, no, no, attitude. I was like, oh, okay. So say it one more time. Attitude, determination and control officer. What does that mean? So basically, um, you may have heard in like old old space movies and stuff, the GNNC, so guidance, navigation, and control, which is a part of what we do. Um, But basically, if you think about it, like flying an airplane, when you're flying on an airplane, you want your pilot to sort of keep you straight and level. You don't want to be doing barrel rolls or, you know, going the wrong direction. So with the help of Isaac Newton, who's normally driving the spacecraft pretty well, um, We just make sure that the ISS is going straight and level. It's pointed where it needs to point um, and it's configured how it needs to be configured. And we use sensors. So GPS, just like you have in your phone, we use GPS to know where we are and which way we're pointed. Um, And we use some other sensors to help us with that as well. And we make sure that we're all configured for whatever activity we're doing. So, you know, you may have to move the space station out of the way of some orbital debris. Actually, I just got an email about that this morning, that that may happen tonight. Or if something is docking, you may need to move the space station to very specific attitudes. So like it's orientation um, in order for the vehicle that's coming to dock correctly. So there's lots of different little pieces to it. Okay. I find this very exciting. So you could sit in Houston and be like, type, 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 and then watch the space station move. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. 
I don't know yeah, why. I don't know why I found that surprising, but it just made me like flush. This is I, I this is how I felt when I found a Playboy in the woods when I was 11. <laughs> it's very exciting. Okay, um that that's amazing. And is it just you at a time or is there a group of people? There's a group of us that are certified, so there's probably 25 of us um that can sit console. Normally, it's just one of us sitting there at a time. We have shifts um, and we support 24-7. So sometimes I work in the middle of the night. If we have an activity that we know about, uh, for instance, a spacewalk or a docking, we usually have a second person in a back room. So they kind of help us just like double check all the commands that we send and make sure we're doing everything correct. That's very, that's very, so there's redundancy in those moments. Exactly. And yes. it's not just, they're not just sitting back there smoking cigarettes and drinking Dr. Pepper. They're actually helping you, the person who's out front. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually not smoking, but you know, the yeah. building is from the sixties, so it does <laughs> kind of smell like cigarettes. Well, listen, every space movie, all of the white men who control mission control are smoking cigarettes. Uh, that's just what I've seen. Um, there's always, you know, there's always 9,000 white guys. They all have crew cuts in these films. They're smoking cigarettes very viciously. Is it, is yes. it stressful? Like does, does work make your blood sugar try to go up? That's an interesting question. I actually, when I'm on console, uh, my response to adrenaline is I I go low. Oh. And so I try to keep my blood sugar a little bit higher. I run it just a little higher than I would off console. So off console, I'm kind of targeting around 100. And on console, I usually run more like 130, 140, which just gives me a little runway if something were to happen um, to sort of catch myself before I start going low. Wow. So you get an, when you get an adrenaline surge, your blood sugar drops pretty significantly yeah wow always been like that um i guess i've you know i've really tuned into it while i've had this job so it's likely that that it's always been there but i've just never noticed it quite as as you know in real time like i do now no kidding that's interesting hey um because you work in shifts i know i'm jumping around but this is how my brain works because you work in shifts do you see feet on the floor like um, dawn phenomenon stuff if you wake up at 11 o'clock at night to go to work? Um, not consistently. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely see um, interesting trends, spikes if I work the night shift. And um, the interesting thing is I normally wake up, you know, I, I when I work the night shift, I'll work um, – our shift is 11.30 p.m. to 8.30 a.m. And then I'll come home and I usually try to like go to bed immediately because my kids are at daycare so I can sleep while they're not home. Yeah, right. Um, and it's interesting because I'll usually wake up around right at noon or 1 p.m. and be hungry and my blood sugar is going low. So it's like it's expecting me to eat lunch and I'm just I'm not hungry right then because I've been working all night. So um it's way better now that I have control IQ mm-hmm. on board. So that, that helps so much with shift work and just weird schedules in general. So I'm yeah. thankful for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Arden uses loop and it, uh, it, it's amazing to watch it take away basil and, and try to fight off flows, you know, significantly in the future. Um, yeah. Very, very cool. I, mean, I can imagine that would be something you would have been interested in. I assumed you had something like that uh, just based on your job. 
Okay. (laughs) Now let's everybody slow down for a second. And by that, I mean me, because I'm still a little jittery, like a little, like you're like one of the more famous people I've talked to in my mind. Uh, So (laughs) just, it's just, um, I guess I just, I grew up in the right space, right? Like my parents remembered, you know, you know, moonshot and Kennedy and all that stuff. And they spoke about it with a lot of reverence, you know, people live growing up, living in the seventies who actually saw, you know, as a child, you know, saw us, you know, put men on the moon. It was, it was, it was really spoken about just right up there. Like the world doesn't work this way anymore, but you know, when you hear like the Super Bowl has, you know, the most people ever always on television, watching television, it's usually the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl, it's because things like that were special and now there's so much availability to everything that nothing feels as special. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's how it feels to me, that nothing is special because there are so many options of things to do, see, um, or, or partake in. And so my parents saw it as amazing that, you know, we put somebody on the moon. And then as a child, you know, the space shuttle program was just stunning to watch. And then, of course, there was the tragedy with the one shuttle, and that felt like, I don't know how to say, like, that, 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 there was a mourning that, that covered the entire country when that happened. And, um, I don't know if, if that, if that would impact people the same way in modern day times, because, I mean, because does anybody, I mean, how many people listening to this are like, wow, there are people in a space station right now? I had no idea. You know, like, I think that that's, that's true. And I'm still one of those people. And I told you when we spoke earlier, the reason April got to be on the show is um, because one of you asked for her to be on the show. And um, I was struggling with it in my mind because I don't have people on the program who've been on other podcasts and you had recently been on a podcast. So somebody said, Hey, please get this person on the show, meaning you. So I do a little diligence and I find out you were just on a podcast and I was like, ah, I don't do that. And so I sort of let go of it. I was like, well, maybe I'll like reach out to her next year or something like that. And then I was awoken in the middle of the night, had to get up for something got this little alert on my phone that said I could go sit down right now and watch um, a docking at the space station and watch people like get there for the first time. And so there I am at like one thirty in the morning in my underwear watching this. And then I was just like, this is a sign. April should be on the show. <laughs> um, and and so I, I reached out to you and, and you were like so nice to, to want to do this. But I want you to know that like, I sat here for like 45 minutes just watching astronauts unbuckle their seatbelts to get ready to get out of this capsule and go into the space station. And and to say that by today's entertainment standards, nothing was happening would be an understatement. Like nothing was happening. You know, they were just sitting there. But there's still that person inside of me who grew up through all this who was just like, oh, my God, we just took four people, stuck them in a tin can and shot them up into space. They stuck to another tin can and they're about to get into it. And that all to me is still fascinating, you know, um, really just, I think it's, it's overwhelming. Like I'm stunned that the structure and how they, do you know what I mean? Like, like, couldn't you just like crush one of those things in your hands, but they're up in space. Like what happens if a rock hits it? I have a lot of questions. You're not getting out of here anytime soon. So, um, (laughs) so first of all, 
Do you feel the way I feel? Or do you feel like a million times more than that about this? Oh, I'm not inside your skin. So I can't say I know exactly how you feel, but um, I am just, I'm pretty pumped about everything space. I was fortunate enough to see two space shuttle launches, one really close, only about three miles away. And I just remember bawling my eyes out because it was the most patriotic, inspiring, just all consuming thing that I've, I've ever witnessed. And I wish that everyone could feel that about something, you know, I, I think like you were saying, there's so many things to be interested in now and, and so much information coming at us all the time. You know, I feel like there's not that many people that have a true passion about something. And I mean, that's just something that's so important to me, you know, and drives so many things in my life. And I wish that for everybody, I wish, you know, there was a passion that everyone had. Yeah. Do you think the goal is to get us off of this rock? Is that what space exploration is about, like long term? That is maybe a really, really long term goal. Um, And, you know, everyone kind of has a different goal. So the goals and missions that NASA has are different than, say, Elon Musk, uh, who's made it pretty clear that his goal is to land on Mars and, and figure out a way for us to, to cultivate on other planets. Um, But what I think is so interesting is, you know, exploring with humans is still just so inspiring. You know, we, we have probes that are literally outside of our solar system now. I mean, Voyager is in deep space and hardly anyone knows about it. You know, it's like a forgotten thing. Like we're still getting data from Voyager that was launched 50 years ago and is now past Pluto in deep space. But there's something really special about humans and having a human perspective on missions. And so I don't know where I was going with this, but I think it's really important to to continue exploration um, with humans. And while that may not be to deep space anytime soon, I think there's really, really concrete and tangible benefits that we can feel on earth from these missions right now. So yeah, what is today's Velcro? Oh man, there's so many things. Um, There's actually a lot of medical science that's been going on to help people um, with different conditions, different ways that we're um, creating medicines in space. Uh, We're researching different things. Actually, uh, there was a SpaceX launch uh, just this past weekend and mm-hmm. the docking was yesterday. Um, and on board are some rats for some experiments that are going to be happening with rats. So we do those. Um, of course, all of the remote operations that we do on a daily basis actually help, um, you know, lots of people in real time now, on, you know, have better interactions with people remotely. Um, Like I said, clean drinking water. We're learning so much about communications, like communication satellites, how we can deliver internet to people in really remote parts of the world. Um, You know, different food techniques for growing food in weightlessness and applying those to how we grow food on the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just so many different things. And um, NASA puts out actually a really great, article every year that's, you know, like, here's all the benefits to humanity from ISS from this year. 
Um, and you can like Google that or something, but they put that out every year, which is really interesting to read about some of the really cool things. You know, there's lasers and all sorts of space age stuff, but there's really like down to earth stuff. The whole idea of ISS is off the earth for the earth. So we're really trying to, um, use science to our benefit in space and learn and apply the lessons that we've learned to things on earth. Sometimes I feel like it's the limitations of how the lifespan of a human being um, that limits us from imagining out into the future. Because if you, I mean, if you think about it, I think Carl Benz invented the first car in like 1885 or 86 ish in there. Right. So like 134, not that long ago, uh, you know, 130 some years ago, people rode horses to get places. (laughs) That's not that long ago when you really stop and think about it. And yet it seems like forever, if you're 20 years old, you're like, Oh, 134 years ago. That's, that's forever. And it's not, it's, it's just this split second in, in time. And that I think is like, cause when you said Voyager has been out there for 50 years, is that what you said? Like 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, I think, I don't know. Like, I think then people hear like, and it's only to Pluto and you're like, no, no, you're thinking about it wrong. <laughs> like, like it's the time it's confusing because of our lifespan. And because of how we really see it. I mean, if you stop, and I don't want to be a bummer here, April, but you basically spend the first 20 years of your life getting on your feet, right? And then mid-20s or so, you start to pull it together a little bit. So you've basically got about 20 good years in there before your back starts to hurt all the time. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Then you're on the back back nine. Some people call it the downswing, whatever you want. And then you get as much time as you get at the end. And so you, your real life, like you're making babies, um, expanding the planet, that part of your life is about 20, 25 years right in the middle there. And that just makes all of this seem magical in a, in, in a way that's almost like, well, I don't need to pay attention to it because like, I won't be around to see it. But I just don't buy into that. Like, I, I love the idea of feeling like you were in some way a small part of like a bigger idea. And uh, I don't know, just to consider that, you know, people rode horses less than 150 years ago as their only means of transportation, personal transportation. And now there are, I mean, it seems effortless now when the rockets go up, like they just, it's ignition and a bunch of fire. And a couple of minutes later, you're breaking orbit. And it's just crazy. Um, I wish people in general would just take a minute to think about that. The, the you know, how far you've come in such a short amount of time. And sure, I'm not going to be alive 130 some years from now. But imagine what people are going to say, like, oh, back in 2020, you know, they had to do this. Like, think of what a leap it is from horses to the car you're driving today. And from horses to the rockets, like, it's just it feels it feels like we're really just starting to me. I don't know. Does that is that right? Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting too, you know, this year we launched Bob and Doug. You may have heard of them. Uh, They launched this summer on the first commercial space flight um, through SpaceX that arrived at the International Space Station. And that was the first time that I have seen in my personal lifetime a new vehicle 
launch with humans on it and arrive at the space station. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there was the space shuttle before, but um, you know, I wasn't around when the, the space shuttle took its first flight. So that was literally this generation's first new human rated space vehicle, which is kind of just blows your mind. Um, And I think things are just going to get more streamlined and efficient from here. And there's going to be a lot more, um, you know, people that aren't necessarily astronauts, but are more private paying customers or um, we're calling them private astronaut missions, PAMs. Um, going to the space station and we're adding a couple of commercial modules on the front of ISS to accommodate them and the work that they're going to do. So it's like a whole new era of space travel and sort of the missions are evolving. And I hope that getting, I guess, more normal people um, access to space will make it something that kind of is more interesting to the general public again. Yeah. Hey, listen, when things on Corona, whenever that happens, uh, there are, I think there are four spots around the country where you can visit like a retired space shuttle. And I've done it at, um, uh, the Udvar. Is that how you say the name? It's Steven Udvar. Udvar Hazy. Hazy. There's this, yeah, in Virginia. And until you've literally stood like 20 feet away from the space shuttle and looked up at it and gone, wow, we got that into space. And then it came back and just glided back down again. It's, it's, it's mind numbing to, to, to think about. Um, Hey, you, you just said about adding on to the, onto the station. Now, when you do that, does that fundamentally change everything about how you move it? Does like, how do you make adjustments for that? Oh, that's awesome. Wow. You're like thinking like an engineer. That's so cool. Well, you're changing um, it, right? So it's got to go ahead. Go ahead absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, we can basically, th- do you remember those like old timey, uh, little desktop models where it would be like a pin and then something on one side and a weight on the other side. Um, and you could like spin it around and it kind of balanced on its like, yeah, the- like a balancing mm-hmm. thing. So that's kind of how we fly the space station. We um, we use these big gyroscopes. So it's you know just like a gyroscope you'd think of. We use four huge ones uh, to stabilize ISS. And so when we add a new module or a new vehicle docks or undocks, uh, we definitely change our orientation ever so slightly just to make sure that everything is still balanced throughout an orbit. See, that's cool. It, how long does the space station last? Like, is it is there a, like a retirement date for it? Uh, I think the last retirement date I heard for it was 2028. It keeps getting pushed back. It's kind of dependent on um, Congress and funding. Uh, we are an international collaboration. So we also have international partners, which provide money and resources to the program. Mm-hmm. So they kind of feed into it as well. But the other interesting thing is just ISS is kind of old. If you think about 20 years ago and think about the computer technology 20 years ago, I mean, it was crazy different than it is today. And those are the computers that are on ISS. And especially space stuff takes a while to get certified to even fly in space. So those computers are probably even a few years older than 20. Um, So the interesting engineering challenge for us now with the space station is how can we use the technology and resources we already have in space because it's really expensive to launch stuff um, in new ways to support new programs? And 
that's it's a really unique engineering challenge to use what you already have it's kind of like that apollo 13 moment where they throw all the stuff on the table and say hey make a co2 scrubber from all this crap that we have on board and that's all you got because we're not launching anything else up there so um it's kind of a fun challenge yeah no kidding so when it have we retired space stations prior to this one uh the u.s has never had a space station prior to this one um we the Russians have had space stations, several, um, and they've retired those after a few years of runtime each time. The longest being Mir, which you probably remember, yeah, which preceded ISS just a little bit. And we actually had U.S. astronauts on board Mir, and the space station or the space shuttle could actually dock with Mir. So that was kind of the some of the first steps in our collaboration with Russia. Um, this is the first U.S. space station. When Russia was done with them, do they crash them or do they point them in the other direction and just shoot them away? How do you do that? I, You know what? I have to go back because we did have Skylab. So those were short duration um, space stations. I guess you could, could qual- qualify mm-hmm. them as that. But um, so you're kind of talking about end of life, which we actually have plans in place um, should ISS need to be deorbited. And there's this special place in the South Pacific off the coast of Australia that sort of all of the space junk, space stuff that we want to have reenter safely, um, we kind of shoot for that one area in the Pacific because it's the most uninhabited place on Earth. So, um, yeah, it takes a lot of planning to safely deorbit something as large as the ISS. I'm just reading here. Uh, it says right now there are nearly 6,000 satellites circling circling our planet. 60% of those are defunct. They're just, and roughly 40% are operational. That's really crazy. So private companies, like if you have Sirius Satellite Radio, that's a company, just a privately owned company who launched a satellite into space to, so I'm assuming all kinds of communications companies have satellites. Will they start bumping into each other eventually? <laughs> Why doesn't that happen? <laughs> it does happen occasionally. Really? Uh, and, okay. and those are those are bad days, actually. Um, so there, there's, you know, the U.S. has a military aspect that monitors all of the space debris or satellites. They have an entire catalog of thousands of objects that they're tracking. Everything from an actual satellite down to, you know, say a a wrench that an astronaut accidentally let loose during a spacewalk. So tons of different stuff they're tracking. Um, the problem is when they when they hit each other, which happens rarely, but it, it has happened before. Um, to stay in orbit, an object is actually traveling at least 17,500 miles per hour. So if the orbits are not aligned... Um, you know, you're basically hitting two objects together at those speeds. So Hmm. essentially double the speed in in the worst case situation. Obviously that's much faster than a bullet. Um, And so when they collide, it's just a huge explosion and it creates all these other tiny little pieces that now become part of that huge catalog of space debris. And so that can actually really impact our operations on ISS and we've had to use the thrusters on ISS to move out of the way of pieces of debris before. So that's the part that's hard to wrap your head around if you're me, is that there's so much space 
it's such a strange word now, but so if you look at a, a, a blown up example of, of satellites orbiting, are there, first of all, are there levels like in like the, like the FAA flies certain planes at one height, others at other altitudes? Like, are there, are there distances from the planet that are like rings that stuff float in? Like if I'm AT&T, am I in one ring or is, do you know what I'm saying? Does any of that make sense? Cause I'm confused. Yeah, I'm not sure it's as defined as you think of it, like, you know, altitudes for airlines and Mm -hmm. stuff. But, um, you know, different satellites operate at different altitudes for different reasons. Um, ISS, you know, we're pretty low. We're at like 250 miles above Earth. Um, And so we orbit every 90 minutes. We go around the Earth. Yeah. some satellites, they want to stay over the same spot on Earth in order to provide, you know, certain communications or coverage of one area. And so those satellites are in geosynchronous orbit, which is something like 22,000 miles high. Wow. So um, definitely different levels for different purposes. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. I really appreciate that yeah. you explained that. Uh, because to hear that there are 6,000 man-made things up there that are floating around, you would just think, oh, they'll bump into each other constantly. But if you do kind of a a macro pullback and you really think of the planet, how big the planet is, and then see how far away from the planet some of these things are, 6,000 things is probably not really that much because of how yeah, much Yeah, that sounds like a low number to me. So really? those must be 6,000 things that have been launched into space or um, maybe like rocket bodies that haven't deorbited yet. But okay. I think there's quite a few more um just pieces of debris or or things that we're tracking that are in orbit around earth when when things do slow down do they mostly burn up on reentry or does it matter does the size have something to do with it uh the size does have something to do with it but yeah usually they're just going to burn up um you know even our several of the cargo vehicles that we bring up to the ISS they just burn up on reentry um, and their re-entry is planned such that they'll hit the atmosphere at an angle to make sure that they burn up, ah. um, which is a way that we dispose of things. Bring it in slower so it spends more time in that heat and just destroys them. Yep. Ah. Okay. How about in Apollo 13 when they say, if we come back at the wrong angle, we'll skip off and shoot out into space? Was that just for drama? No, that's actually a very real phenomenon. And we actually, you know, we've been talking about that a lot and reentry and orbital mechanics for our moon missions, Um, because sometimes you can use that to your advantage. You know, if you are maybe targeting a land landing site that in the ocean that now has a hurricane brewing, you know, maybe you do want to skip off and reenter at a slightly different location or angle. So it's not always a bad thing, um, depending on what kind of programs you have uh, at your disposal to use. Do movies like Star Wars make you go, oh, this is not even anywhere close to how it would be? Do you have that weird feeling when you see media around space dramatizations? Um, there's So there's definitely sort of two categories. There's like the science fiction and the science fantasy. Mm-hmm. I am not a huge fan of science fantasy uh, just because I think it's not really about space or science. It's more about the story. Mm -hmm. So you could set that in, you know, 
England 2000 years ago and it would be the same story. It's just like a little bit different, you know, setting. Right. But so I'm not a huge fan of those. I do like Star Trek. It's a little more of the the science fiction where it it seems plausible. It's just, you know, not all of that technology is is designed yet. Um, so I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. Sorry if if that's your thing. No, no um, you don't have to apologize. To I people. do like I do like Star Trek uh, and and those sorts of things where it seems a little bit more possible. Like The Martian, actually, really great story, and a lot of that is super realistic. So I like stuff like that. Did you catch Away on Netflix? I have not watched it yet. Oh, like they, I said, I have two young kids, so they canceled, <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, unfortunately. I enjoyed it, and then they canceled it after one season. They said it was too expensive to make or something, and COVID, blah, blah, blah. It was like, come on. It's the first time I've liked Hillary Swank and like five things she's done, and then they just took it from her. It's not fair. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, seriously, she needs to work. <laughs> How old are those kids of yours, by the way? They are two and four. Oh, wow. Those are little kids. Yeah. There's so much trouble. I mean, fun at that age. Uh, <laughs> right. Does your husband do something similar to you? Or is he like, have something that's got nothing to do with engineering or anything like what you do? So funny story. Maybe if I tell you how we met, it will give you a hint. Um, so we actually met because I, well, we were both counselors at space camp. Um, while we were in college. (laughs) So that's where we met. And uh, he is, I'm an aerospace engineer. He's a mechanical engineer. Um, Recently actually switched over to NASA and he is working on the batteries that will be used in the spacesuits when we go to the moon. Wow. What's the target for the moon? Sorry? What's the target date for getting back to the moon for us? Uh, it's a little bit in flux. The The timeline for the the current administration is boots on the moon by 2024. Um, NASA is kind of in a, a wait and see mode to see what's going to happen with the presidential transition. Gotcha. Uh, but that's the work to date as of now. So, Is there a plan to keep them there for a, spa- uh, a, a stretch of time or... So we're actually planning uh, the first missions will kind of be similar to Apollo. So just kind of go there, land, um, come back. But eventually we want to build a space station out near the moon, actually, in something called a halo orbit. And um, that will be sort of this interim spot that the astronauts hang out there. And then they get in basically their, you know, the lunar craft that's going to land on the moon. Um, go down to the surface for some period of time, come back up to the space station, and then catch a different vehicle for their ride home. Ooh, so you'll it it's they'll you'll be able to put basically moon explorers on that space station and have them like they're going to work. They can just go down to the moon, do something, come back up to the space station, so they can do it more frequently without having to go all the way home again. That's exciting, right? Yeah, it'll be pretty fun. So one day will there just be like a like a a system of stations, do you think? Or do you think those are the only two? I haven't really thought about that. I haven't heard of any specific plans to do a system of stations. There's been lots of talk leading up to the the moon missions on, you know, what makes the most sense for sort of the long-term goals for NASA. 
So previously we were thinking about putting a space station at a Lagrange point, which is just this fancy word for saying um, sort of an equal balance gravity point, um, which is nice because then we don't have to use a lot of propellant to try to stabilize our orbit or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is we don't have a really big um, system of deep space communication yet just because we haven't needed it. So there's just some infrastructure that's needed there before we can think about kind of those longer term missions. That kind of interesting thinking should illuminate for people that the, uh, the amount of time that it takes, like you have to put a satellite in a spot just to communicate and putting that satellite there could end up taking years, right. To design it. And and then as technology is moving forward, everybody has that perspective from their cell phone, like how quickly tech changes. So the moment you make the decision, this is what we're going to build this communication satellite out of the second you make the decision, it becomes obsolete almost as technology flies forward. It must be difficult to decide when to make something, you know, when, when is the technology right to, to, to move forward like that. Um, you just said something that made me wonder when you, when you actually move the space station, you talked about propellant, what does propel it? Like, like little tiny rockets. Is it, (laughs) is it air? Is it like, what moves it? Yeah, we use thrusters. So essentially like little rocket engines, but they just take one propellant. So, um, we don't need, well, we need a fuel and an oxidizer. Um, but we, we don't need a lot of all the extras that come with, um, you know, the rockets that we launch off earth, which is nice. Um, but yeah, we try not to use those very much because, you know, it costs something like $10,000 a pound to launch something into space. So, you know, every little pound of propellant we use is pretty expensive. And that's why we try to use, you know, the electricity we generate from the solar arrays, to drive our big gyroscopes in order to stabilize ISS. And we've come up with some really unique ways to maneuver ISS using just those gyroscopes mm-hmm. um, and very little propellant, which is really cool. We do this one maneuver. It's my favorite thing. It's called an OPM. Everything in NASA is a, an acronym, but it stands for Optimized Propellant Maneuver. And we actually flip the space station 180 degrees. So we flip it over backwards. Um, over the period of one orbit, so 90 minutes, and we use very little propellant. We kind of just use um, propellant to get it started. Then we use the gyroscopes and gravity actually to um, sort of flip us all the way over backwards to set up for an event. So it's pretty cool. Do you tell the astronauts that's happening? Yeah, we do. We give them something called an attitude timeline every day. Uh, They get sort of like this little daily report And it gives them some information about the day and any special things they need to keep in mind. So if we're going to be doing any maneuvers or anything like that, we'll add that in our attitude timeline for the astronauts. If you didn't tell them, would they notice? I don't think they would notice unless they looked out the window and realized they were flying backwards, essentially. So there's Because they're not going to have any feeling of orientation changing. Right. There's been a few astronauts, if you Google it, they've done some YouTube videos on uh, reboosts. So sometimes we have to boost the altitude of the station. Um, And if they know it's coming, sometimes they'll set up these little like uh, gravity indicators, acceleration indicators, like a little stuffed animal or something. 
And you can see it in the video, but I think it would be hard for the astronauts to know that without knowing beforehand. Yeah. I, my only obvious, uh, we went on a cruise one time and we were up on the deck and you know, the, the launch time was coming up, but I wasn't really paying attention. And my wife's like, we're moving. And I said, uh, I don't think we are. Uh, we're still right here. And she goes, no, it's moving. I'm telling you it's moving. And no lie. She was right. Like she could feel it immediately. Whereas I had no inclination of it at all. Um, I don't know what that, you know, it's probably something in her, in her ear or something like that. But I just wondered, like you could actually flip them around and if they couldn't see out the window, they'd have no idea that that was happening. It was very cool. Yep. Do you ever meet an astronaut as part of your job? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we have astronauts that are CAPCOM. So one of the flight control disciplines is CAPCOM. And they are the ones that talk to the astronauts on board. So a lot of times they are astronauts themselves. And then also our group is responsible for teaching the astronauts about our system. So each astronaut candidate goes through like two years of training on just how to operate ISS and what all of the terms mean and, um, you know, what to do if they don't have communication with the ground. And so our group teaches them how to control the station's attitude if they don't have calm with the ground. Oh, no kidding. So you have friends that are astronauts, basically. Like you send Christmas cards to astronauts, stuff like that. Just say, you just, you I wouldn't say I'm right, super no, close with any of them, but, but yeah. um, they're, they're definitely in, you know, all of our meetings, we have astronaut representation and um, they're a big part of what we do because we want to make sure we're keeping their perspective in mind while we're designing procedures or planning events. Gotcha. But if I said to you at work, stand up and go touch an astronaut, you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. This is what I need to know. Okay. That's fine. That seemed like the most important thing to me. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I'm imagining when you said that astronauts are communicating with uh, others that are in space, it almost felt like, yeah, you'll usually hire like an ex player to coach the team kind of feeling. Like, you know, like people who speak that language and kind of have been in the shoes of the person they're talking to. It does make sense, honestly. I don't know if that's part of the consideration, but it does make sense to me. All right. April, yeah. Here's the that's, thing. That's the whole idea, you know, how, how to package a call so that someone on board would understand it. Yeah. So here's the thing, April. I'm going to just keep talking to you. So we have to stop because I'll, I'm not going to stop. You're going to say something that's going to make me wonder something else. And then this is going to be the longest podcast in the history of time. So I don't want to do that to you because I promised you an hour and it's been longer than that now. Um, tell me what's uh, next time you go to work. Well, no, no, let's go back to the email. So we, you get the email that says that you might have to do a maneuver because of junk. And then you can't like what happens next? Like it's such an odd thing that it's an email just in case you're wondering. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah, so we have um, we have procedures for everything, and uh, part of this procedure, you know, is that we need at least three and a half hours notice before something we call a TCA, which is time of closest approach. That's the object that Stratcom is tracking or whatever, and um, then we have to basically talk on the loops to our Russian colleagues set up timing for when the thrusters are going to fire, which thrusters we're going to use, how long we're going to burn. 
um, and what time we're going to perform that burn in order to make sure we're clear of the space debris in time. Hmm. That's amazing. All that made me think is that I'm very glad that there are smart, dedicated people in the world to do what I'm assuming there, you know, there are jobs that are not as cool as yours that still take this kind of dedication and understanding. It's very, you know, very fun to bring your story to the people listening to the podcast, because I know that one of the things that happens very frequently to people, especially when their children are diagnosed is they just think that possibilities are gone now. And, um, you do something really cool. So obviously, um, obviously <laughs> well, I think so, but <laughs> well, you know, April, tell, tell everybody as we say goodbye here a little bit. When I said I was really excited to get you on the podcast, you couldn't imagine why, really. You were like, why me? Like, this isn't exciting. Like, do you not see this as amazing? I mean, I know you do. Do you just assume other people don't care? Like, what was that disconnect there? Mm, do you remember saying that? question. I do. Okay. I, I guess I just, you know, this is my job. Everybody has a job. And, um, you know, just because I'm... I guess I'm fortunate enough to be able to, to work a job that I truly love and think is absolutely incredible and, and never imagined that I would get to do this. Um, you know, I, it's still a job and I don't know, I, I'm not sure that it should be celebrated more than someone else's job. Well, that is a very 2020 answer. Uh, I appreciate your <laughs> kindness towards other people. You do something really cool, and most of us are idiots. That's really what I'm here to say. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, like, you understand that if if I hopped off the Mayflower, right, Like, and people were like, go make a new world, I'd walk like 15 feet away and go like, is here okay? You, you know, like, and, and they're like, no, go in farther. The minute I got to a creek or a river, I'd just be like, I can't go any farther. That would be it. Like, I don't have that in me, whatever that is, that like push over this thing, build a bridge over this to get to the next thing. My brain just doesn't work that way. I would just set up shop somewhere. I'd be like, here's good. <laughs> I'd, I'd live on the beach probably. I'd be like, far enough. <laughs> so that there are other people who look at a river and think, no, I could build a structure over top of that river. Or, you know, wouldn't this be easier if there were roads? Or... You know, wouldn't it be great if we put up poles with wires on them so we could talk to people farther away? Like that, those are special people who who do those things and propel us forward. And I know I'm not one of those people. And I imagine a lot of people are more like me. Like I just wanted to like be somewhere and you know have a family. And I don't have thoughts like that. What you do is like <laughs> fanciful. It's uh, it's almost it's magical. Well, you say that, but I mean. Anyone that lives with diabetes or takes care of someone with diabetes, you know, faces challenges like this literally every single day. We have to figure out how are we going to get this high down? How are we going to find something to eat when we're in the middle of, I don't know, Yosemite or something? And, you know, how can we streamline our diabetes management to make it easier for everybody and tighter control? And so, I mean, you say that, but I, I think all of us as people that interact with diabetes do this on some, some smaller scale, maybe almost every day. Isn't it interesting that first of all, you said Yosemite, my favorite vacation I've ever taken in my life. It's possible you and I are supposed to be married April. And secondly, <laughs> um, so I, I hear what you're saying and you're, you're hundred percent right. My disconnect for feeling it about myself is I'm building all kinds of bridges 
but my bridges are made out of thoughts and not something physical. So I could sit here and make the argument that I've propelled people with diabetes forward with words and ideas and everything. And I guess that is building a bridge over a river, but like, I'm talking about like physically doing it, like saying we have this and it needs to get there and, and actually making it get there. I don't know. That's, um, that maybe that's part of your engineering brain that you think is normal that other people who aren't engineers <laughs> don't, you know, just don't possess. So I, I think you're right. I think people living with diabetes make big decisions all the time. And the ones who are continuing to move forward are doing the exact same thing. So they're they're launching theoretical space stations into into diabetes space. Let's say, um, absolutely, yeah, yeah, that I believe, I really do. But nuts and bolts, you're way smarter than me, and just take <laughs> it, okay? Just say thank you and stop arguing because this is really cool. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> thank you. There, now we're getting to it. Take the compliment, April. <laughs> I'll try. Is there it's anything hard. that we didn't talk about that I should have asked you about? Oh. You probably feel dizzy because I just, I jump around a lot when I'm doing this stuff. You're like my husband. He has like really bad ADD. So we'll just be doing something and then it'll make him think of something totally different. Um, I would argue that's what makes this podcast interesting, but okay, it's fine. I, no, I no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's good for a podcast. It's yeah. just sometimes annoying being married to that person, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, do you want to I restart and complain about your husband right a little now, bit? So. We could do a half hour on that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> How to be married to someone with ADD yeah. when you have diabetes. No. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, I listen, I take your point. Um, you say something. I can feel myself fighting. Like I have a, I ask you a question and I have in my mind a question, my, my next question that's going to propel along. Like, I don't know what you're going to say, but I can imagine extending it with a second question. But then while you're saying it, you say something that I find so much more interesting than what I was going to ask that I just deviate and go to that. <laughs> and that's how we ended up 40 minutes into it before I was like, you should probably tell people what you do at NASA. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's, it's good to, Talk to someone who's really interested in it. So I don't know how everybody's not completely interested in it. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's one of the most fascinating things that we do as people like send people up into space and they live there and they don't die and a thing doesn't hit them. And it's just, it's, it's, it's so incredible. It, and to not see that it is as incredible is, um, you know, I had a, uh, a cellist on recently and I'm mm -hmm. a, I'm just a massive cello fan. I like I like an unaccompanied cello played with feeling and heart by one person. And as I was talking to her, I probably talked to her the way I talked to you about this. And uh, I've gotten a lot of notes since then from people who are like I didn't understand. I never heard the cello. I've been listening that kind of thing. And I thought, good, like that's a complicated thing that a brilliant person does. And um and it's just people don't pay attention to it. And uh, I don't know, like, you know, I shared with April, I'm going to let you go in a second. Like, you're not having like a low blood sugar. Your kids aren't locked in a closet or something like that, right? No, no. Okay. So I shared with April that I was not, a, when we spoke before this, that I was not a good student um, in school. And I had a book report due, which I didn't do. And I came to my mom the night before it was due, literally. And I said, hey, had a big book report due tomorrow. You know, it's a lot of points. I haven't started it. Not going to lie. 
if you let me pretend to be sick tomorrow and stay home, I'll get it all done in a day, which probably was also a lie. It was probably just me procrastinating more. And so I was home in my living room. I can picture it sitting on the sofa with a coffee table in front of me with encyclopedias, trying to find out information about this thing I was writing a report on because God knows I wasn't going to, you know, read the book. And so I, um, I'm sitting there trying to do it. I have the television on and it happens to be, and I did not do this, you know, purposefully. It happens to be the day of the, the shuttle disaster. And so I flipped the television on and I watched the shuttle go up. I watched it explode and I watched everything that happened afterwards. And it just uh, sticks with me to this day that there were these people who were strapping their ass to a rocket to try to move people forward and it killed them. And that somebody just came along afterwards and did it again. Like that the next person just stepped up and said, this is so important. I'm going to strap my ass to the next rocket and we're going to try this again. Like I find that completely inspirational. Um, And I don't know if it has much to do with having witnessed it as much as I could, you know, live. But I just think it's amazing that the next person steps up. In in all walks of life, but this one specifically, like this isn't driving to the mall, April. You know what I mean? Like this is your feet are on the ground. And then, I mean, what is it? Three, four, five minutes later, you're in orbit, right? Just, and they're, if, if, if people haven't watched a launch, they, they should, they should watch it straight through because I find it astonishing. And, um, and, and <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I wasn't alive for, um, Challenger. I I was alive for Columbia, which uh, broke up on reentry. But it's interesting because at NASA we we really take um, the failures we've had seriously because we have had failures, and that's part of this game. It's it's a risk, and you know astronauts know that going in, and we try to mitigate the risks as best we can. But there's just some element of risk that remains when you get on top of basically a a huge explosive. So NASA is really great about, you know, reflecting and um, reviewing the lessons that we learned. And every year as flight controllers, we have proficiency and we have to read the Columbia accident investigation report um, and see, you know, where the links in the error chain happened and apply those to the situations we're in now. Um, So it is really interesting and I can't say, you know, I can't speak from the astronaut perspective of actually getting back on, but just us as flight controllers sitting there, you know, even when you're in a simulation and you know, it's all made up, but something happens to an astronaut, it's, it just amps up the whole room. And, you know, we're all so invested in this. Like you said at the beginning, it's not, you know, it's not just like a job. Everyone who works there loves space and loves doing this. And so, um, that investment means that we have to be able to control our emotions and compartmentalize a little bit, but realize that this is a huge deal. Yeah. And it's not just someone's life in your hands. It's it's public perception of NASA, which I remember, you know, you talked about the reentry and we followed that, you know, you followed that news Back then, like you said earlier, like you couldn't just open your phone up and find out what was going on in the world. You had to turn the news on at night to find out what was going on and to to finally learn that this just basically this square of, you know, foam popped off of the front of the, the shuttle and it allowed heat to penetrate the hull is, I mean, it, it took them forever to like actually come out and tell us that. And 
and you learned about it. I never forget like thinking like it wait, it's foam? Like there's like like foam on on the outside of the space shuttle that's what was keeping it from like really you, you know like wh- okay like any that's crazy who figured that out what genius figured that out? if you put me in charge of that i'd be like well obviously we need nine feet of steel thick uh you know like you know like i wouldn't know like i would have no idea how to imagine things like that so when you say you know people's you know you, you kind of have people's lives in your hand you definitely do but it's also like it's the life of the project and and all that that touches because when it's slowed down for a while when you know kind of politically there was no taste for pushing forward um that was scary to me like oh, we can't stop doing this like because what did we do all this for if you're going to stop now like you got to keep going and find out what's next um yeah you know and that still drives a lot of our decisions you know keeping that in mind and uh you know, ensuring that we have the most safety we possibly can with the budget that we're given and the schedule that we have to to meet yeah. um, in order to fulfill those requirements um, and keep everything safe so that we can keep going and keep exploring. Yeah, I'm up for that. As much money as possible should go towards any kind of exploration, scientific exploration, in my mind. Um, that's the only way you're going to get somewhere. So it's, it's, you have to come to the conclusion that your life isn't the point. This sounds crazy, but it's it's humanity's life that's the point. Like it's not about where you are, or what you want personally. It's about where do we send it, and and that if it's constantly like that, then then the possibilities are endless. But when you focus inward, um, then everything stops and stands still. So yep, and it's like that even outside of space. You know, I think just the recent political cycle has shown us that that sometimes it's really important to step back and have that sort of out of body experience that it's not about me. It's about what's best for for everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically the wear a mask of uh, of uh, space (laughs) travel, just like, hey, maybe it's right. Maybe it's not. Just do it. Let's see if we can't move forward a little bit here. Just in general, it's um, I don't know. It's it's takes a long time. I didn't always think like that either. It takes a long time to be mature enough to say that I'm not the most important thing here. Um, and to make the most important thing, something that you'll never see, feel, touch, or know about. Uh, but that's how I feel. I, I to me, exactly. like it, human exploration feels, um, uh, just it, it's the whole thing. Like it's, it's everything. Like we used to, like I said, we used to ride horses. We used to, we used to not live here. People, you know, were on different continents. And can you imagine how scary it was to get on a ship in, you know, 16-something and be like, hey, I wonder what's over on the other side of that ocean? <laughs> I wouldn't have had the nerve to do that. I'd be like, I'm standing right here, buddy, where I know I'm getting dysentery <laughs> and dying. All right? <laughs> anyway, you were really delightful. I, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. Yes. Thank you so much for reaching out. It It's Sort of a dream come true to be on the Juice Box podcast. Oh, wait a minute. Let's not cut away too soon. Were you going to say something nice about the podcast? Well, I I just think, you know, it's definitely one of the staples, I think, in the diabetes community. And, um, you know, I've been in the diabetes online community sphere for, I don't know, probably 10 years. I've been writing my blog sporadically and... Um, sort of recently got on Instagram and stuff, but it's just one of those staples that has been around forever. We can probably think of on one hand, kind of the things that have 
really shaped the community and, um, you know, propelled us forward as a community. April, if you're trying to make me cry at the end, you almost got there, but you fell short by not calling me the John Glenn of diabetes. Oh, <laughs> well, Chuck Yeager just died yesterday. So we got to, you know, we got to hold he? off. On, Did he really? You know, comparing. So. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Dick Allen died too, famous Philly yesterday. I felt bad for him. He was going to get into the Hall of Fame, but because of COVID-19, they didn't do it this year and he didn't he was definitely getting in this year and then he passed away without oh. knowing they ever made it. So, and he will make it. They'll put him in the very next time. Um, but I didn't know about Chuck Yeager. That sucks. Yeah, there's so many pioneering people that um that we forget about along the way. It's it's tough, you know. But uh but to your I want to answer what you said seriously or, or respond to what you said seriously. I, in my heart, it's very nice to hear you say that because I'm, I am very much trying to shift the way people think about their diabetes in a, in a big way. Like I don't just want to fix it for a dozen people. Um, and it's a high minded idea and maybe I'm crazy, but I, I think I'm moving. I think this podcast is moving forward the way people think about their care and I just, I just keep imagining that there's a, there'll be a tipping point where it'll just, it'll explode out of my hands and it, it'll, it won't be up to me anymore. And I'll have reached enough people who speak about using their insulin in a meaningful way that that'll reach more and more and more people. And, and hopefully nobody will ever sit around staring at a 300 blood sugar for hours and thinking like, it's going to come down, it's going to come down, which is what, you know, a lot of current direction would lead you to do. So, um, that's it. I just, that's, that's, this is my moon landing right here. This podcast, <laughs> it's, it's not quite, well, comparable. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, um, you know, probably haven't talked to you personally and, and I was in the boat, same boat until just a couple of weeks ago. So, um, from all of us, maybe silent ish voices, we appreciate what you're doing and all the hard work I know this takes to put together. Thank you. I hope you understand that this is exactly for me. Like when you were like, you want me to be on the past? I'm like, I think you're talking about the wrong person. Now I don't have a, it's hard to, I guess we made uh, a lot of points that came full circle here, but it's hard for me to see this as more than my job some days because it's, um, it takes a lot of like in the moment effort. It just feels like a thing I have, I'm supposed to do. I have to do. It's on my schedule. Like I just booked Jenny. Um, do you like Jenny on the show? Yeah. 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 I just booked Jenny out like through, through 2021. Like I have Jenny on the schedule <laughs> and I already told her what I'm going to make her do in 2022. <laughs> she's, I'm like, are you all right with all this? Because, you know, she's not an employee. She's not a, she's just a person who uh, we enjoy talking about diabetes together and, and uh, and she gives a lot of her time to the podcast. So, um, but yeah, I, I have plans for the show out like two or three years from now. Um, sometimes it's hard for me not to just want to dump it all out there at once, but I know then people won't find it, and it has to kind of be disseminated uh, more slowly. But anyway, that's awesome. So yeah. you're you're already working long term, just like we are over here in the space industry. Maybe my ADHD is more conversational. A huge thank you to April for coming on the show and talking to me about the International Space Station and her job at NASA Mission Control. You can learn more about April at nerdyapril.com or on Instagram at nerdyapril. 
and NASA is at nasa.gov. I don't think they need the pimping from me, but you should check it out. There's some pretty cool pictures there. Let's thank Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Get your free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump right now. Do it now. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. After you've done that, jump over to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box and look into that Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. If you're using insulin, you could use a Dexcom. And if you're a veteran of the United States military and get your health care through the VA, go check it out because I think they're covering it pretty much for everybody. But it's worth looking into is my point. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. I do not have type 1 diabetes, but I am eating a lot of things that normally make people's blood sugar spike so that you guys can see how a pancreas handles those things. You can check that out right now at juiceboxpodcast.com forward slash CGM live. And we're going to be having other people after me put their blood sugars up there so people can watch. If you're interested, like say there's a meal you're really good at. If you're interested in sharing a blood sugar during a bolus for a specific meal, get in touch with me at scott at juiceboxpodcast.com because we're looking for people to share their knowledge at the link. And I want to thank Sugarmate for helping me set up that web page so that you can see blood sugars live. Juiceboxpodcast.com forward slash CGM live. At that link, you can find a link to Sugarmate. So, you know, once you get there, if you're like, ooh, the Sugarmate thing amazing. Just click on the SugarMate link and then you'll see it. They're not a sponsor. Uh, Josh, the owner of SugarMate, just did me a huge solid and helped me set it up so you could see my blood sugar online. So thank you very much to Josh. Josh, this is your shout out. Thank you. Guys, blow Josh up on social media. Let him know how cool he is. All right. Next episode of the podcast will be coming up soon. Episode 420. It's going to be another one about looping. Mm, Algorithm pumping. Very interesting. Sorry to all you weed smokers out there that 420 doesn't have anything to do with weed. I I can't be that well planned out.